Even the driver who used to drive me from home to work told me that he can't do it anymore because he's worried that we will be the car will be hijacked, he will be killed and I'll be kidnapped and he doesn't want to take that responsibility. Imagine planning your education, career, and all future aspirations to come to fruition in one country, and then one day it all comes crashing down and you are forced to move. New language, economy, social norms, and a total shift to your entire life plan. For some of you, this story is all too familiar. Hey everyone, it's Adessa. On this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast, episode 39, I sat down with Dr. Helen Melko, an archaeologist and anthropologist who was born and grew up in Baghdad, Iraq. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Archaeology and a Master's of Arts in Classical, Ancient, Mediterranean, and Near Eastern Studies and Archaeology at the University of Baghdad, with dreams to continue on and secure a career in Iraq. Then 2003 happened, and as she was ready to defend her thesis, the U.S. invasion of Iraq made those goals come to a screeching halt, and soon a new world emerged. She left to the U.S. where she continued to pursue her education, eventually earning a Ph.D. in archaeology and anthropology from Stony Brook University in New York. She currently works as a program director at the Middle East Institute at Columbia University and is a strong advocate for Assyrian cultural preservation. We're in for a treat this week as we once again find these stories of aspirations, heartache, and eventual refreshment. If this is the first time you're listening to the Assyrian Podcast, welcome, welcome. We deliver new episodes to you every Tuesday. To keep up, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening, let others know about us, and if you find value in what we're delivering each week, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on whichever platform you're listening to us. Lastly, support for this podcast comes from Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at 847-982-9516. Now without further ado, Dr. Helen Malko. I was born in Baghdad and I grew up in Baghdad. I was educated at the University of Baghdad. I worked briefly in there and then I eventually came to New York uh, to study. So most of my previous life in Iraq is spent between Baghdad as well as uh, north of Iraq. So we used to travel a lot to Dohuk, so between the two cities. And what memories do you have of Iraq growing up? nice and not so nice memories it's a mix as always nothing is perfect but i definitely have great memories with my friends with our church Godora. Uh, it's my favorite place in fact in iraq wonderful memories i have great memories going to school our local high and elementary schools wonderful friends at college and university. I loved Baghdad, the cultural diversity of it, people of all kind of different backgrounds. It was, it was good. 
but also there was the wars, economic sanctions, and so on. So you get both of it. Both and, sides. And are we talking about the time of like uh, Saddam's? Yes. Yeah, okay. All my memories, the good memories, are all prior to 2003. Ah, okay. You had mentioned that your family or you grew up in a family that was very educated. Did that stem from just your siblings or your parents as well? My parents as well. I come from an Assyrian family that is very, very interested in history, archaeology, arts, and cultures. So we grew up in a household with a lot of books, a lot of magazines, a lot of history just around you, like just books here and there and magazines. And I think that that affected greatly how we chose our paths, like myself and my siblings. Of course, my father had a great role in encouraging education and pushing and supporting us. And my mother was always there for everyone. So it was very uh, interesting setting. <laughs> yeah. So I can then imagine that's where your love started to stem in the areas of archaeology and history. Do you know where it stemmed from with your father? So when I was very young, we would take these family picnics or trips to archaeological sites out of all places. But if you live in Iraq, they're everywhere. And they're just few minutes outside the city. So you drive 40 minutes and there is an archaeological site. And it's it has like a park and a picnic area. And people and families can spend a day or a couple hours there. So we've done a lot of those. Not only around Baghdad. I mean, to Babylon, Nineveh, Ashur, Nimrud, Khorsabad, God, um, Baisafun. I've almost toured these sites maybe around the age of 10 and even earlier. But the moment that I never forget is when I was in uh, Nimrud and I was walking uh, in the palace because Nimrud is, is like they reconstructed the whole site. And I was fascinated by, oh my God, I'm walking in this place where ancient people lived here and walked in these hallways and doorways. And I'm like, oh, you're experiencing the same built environment. So I was fascinated, and I think that's where it started, my interest in history and archaeology and cultures in general. Wow. <laughs> so to really have the experience of having those more or less in, quote-unquote, you know, your backyard, but really within yeah. close reach to you, that must have been so impactful. <laughs> it is. It's amazing. It's really a feeling. It's hard to describe it for these sites to be so accessible. And to have a family that has interest in this part of the culture. I've also been to a lot of uh, non-Assyrian heritage sites. Like I've been to uh, Samarra, which is a very famous Islamic city. I've been to Karbala and like um, the shrines there. So Iraq is just a fascinating place. And if you have interest in history and ancient history it's the best place <laughs> to be in could you paint a picture for us of what life was like within the assyrian community growing up in baghdad yeah so in dora as you know there is a big used to be a big assyrian community it was a really very good community we had few churches around the church played a fundamental role in a sense it was not only a religious institution it was more social and cultural institution as well. So we would be part of youth groups and summer schools for language and 
we would interact and see each other at the church and then organize small events, picnics, parties, and things like that to celebrate. It was good. It was very good to have people, like a sense of community and support, businesses, um, a whole neighborhood that can speak the same language. And, you know, it felt good. But also we had connection with other Assyrians in like different parts of Baghdad. Yeah, because one way or another, you have a family living in a different neighborhood. So it was it was well connected. It was good. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good memories when people think yeah. of Dora and reminisce. And of course, yeah. uh, it isn't what it used to be, but no. people have very pleasant memories. Back then, what was the connection like with uh, Assyrians that lived in other parts of Iraq? Like, were there opportunities for people to connect with each other or were there like shadows that would bring people together from different areas? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was an organized attempt or efforts to bring the community that far away, like in the country together. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of being in Baghdad, for example, through churches, different youth groups would meet Mm -hmm. and then collaborate and put events together or like, you know, work together. So that was in Baghdad. I think the same model would apply to other provinces in the country. So it's within the province okay. more than cross. Yeah. Um, otherwise, like you would have family members in Dohok or Erbil, and then you go back and forth and you meet with people in these other communities. But there is a lot like shared, like culturally shared, and there is mutual understanding there that we are one people. So. It's not the big deal. So you eventually go into university and you complete a bachelor's degree at the University of Baghdad. Yes. As well as a master's. Yes. What did you get your bachelor's in? Uh, Baghdad University Department of Archaeology. Department of Archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. And what led you to that? It's just my fascination with history and interest in ancient cultures. So basically when I went into archaeology, my grade was very high. And I could have been in other high-ranked departments, but I did choose archaeology. And my colleagues back then, my classmates would be like, surprised, like, why are you here? You can be in another department. I like it and I enjoyed it. It was really good uh, four years that I spent in there. And how was archaeology viewed amongst Assyrians there as well as the greater population? You had mentioned that, you know, if you had higher rankings, then you go into, mm-hmm. I'm assuming what we know as like STEM fields, science, yeah. math, okay, yeah. engineering. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. Hard sciences. <laughs> yeah, the hard sciences. <laughs> yeah, uh, humanities and social sciences are not viewed as great fields to go to. Uh, that's true in general for the Middle East, but it's the same in Iraq. So to choose uh, to go to archaeology such a small field and um, not that popular. And as a woman, to basically choose to go there to do that, it's it's not very common. But um, so I always knew I would like to do either history or archaeology, but there's a difference and I'm more interested in cultures as well and material culture as opposed to history, which is more, I think, archival. So I decided I would apply to archaeology. And then I met with Dr. Donnie George, he, he used to live in Dora as well. And we talked about it. And I was like, so what do you think for women? Is it a good field? Should I apply? And he's like, of course. I mean, you can guess like <laughs> archaeologists now. So he was very supportive. And um, 
basically after I met with him, I was like, yeah, it's done. I, I applied and I got in and yeah, actually I took a class with him my first year in the Department of Archaeology at Baghdad University. Wow. Yeah. And he was an archaeologist himself. Yes. Uh, while you were working through your undergrad and then eventually with grad work as well at the University of Baghdad, did he serve as a mentor to you? Yes. Uh, he was actually back then in charge of the research, scientific research unit in the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage in Baghdad. So he would facilitate our research request um, to look at material in the Iraq Museum or if we want to be part of an excavation somewhere in the country or if we want access to uh, excavation reports. So as students, we would deal with him because he was in charge of that uh, scientific research unit back then. Wow. What was it like as an Assyrian studying archaeology in Iraq you touched on this a little bit in the lecture yesterday that depending on the different regime or who is in power, mm -hmm. history can be rewritten and that may include Assyrian history as well. And so what was that like as you were studying archaeology and um, was there a focus placed on the Assyrian uh, aspects? Yes, as an Assyrian you come and study Mesopotamia, you're, you're aware and you know what's in there but you're also you're aware of the current politics of the ruling regime and back then it was very pan-arab uh, approach to the whole history of the region so yeah you would go to class and in the class the professor will tell you would tell you that Akkadians and Assyrians and Babylonians they are all Arab they originated from the Arab Peninsula there were these migration waves that they came and settled in this region. So there is all that narrative being taught systematically in classroom. But at the same time, because you have this background that I was exposed to already before getting to the university level, I can separate, like I was able to separate, okay, this is what politics want, but this is the other narrative. And also, luckily, I had access to books and journals that were produced in Western universities and that are more like scientific, if you wish to call them. But you could see, you could see the politics and the narrative that the state is producing and it's serving one type of national identity. And also, being an Assyrian, it's uh, interesting because especially when you study languages, you pick ancient languages much quicker than your peers in the classroom because Akkadian, we have a lot still of Akkadian words in our language today in Surif, so you can always make the connection and you pick these languages much faster. So that was easy for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you would listen to and read um, the narratives that were being taught to you, I can imagine that it would have been difficult to challenge those. Yeah. <laughs> you can't so challenge So it's almost it. like politicking through that as well. And so once you decided that you were going to continue with your master's degree and you finished your master's, and if I get this right, it's uh, a master's of arts in the classical ancient Mediterranean and Near Eastern studies in archaeology. <laughs> Woo! That's a, <laughs> that's a mouthful. <laughs> In your mind, as a young woman, 
what area of work were you hoping to go into as you finish your bachelor's and wanting to go into a master's? What did you see for yourself as uh, a career moving forward? Yes, I really wanted so much to work in the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage. And that was a possibility because there is a lot, there used to be a lot of work for archaeologists in Iraq. So having, looking for a job and having a job wasn't a problem there because you could be hired at the Iraq Museum, which is a great institution, uh, at the State Board of Antiquities. Then you can go on excavations if you want, or you can work in different units. So it was, that was the path. I wasn't very keen on becoming a professor at the university, <laughs> although my father supported that so much. <laughs> and eventually it kind of, it worked. Uh, I went through the grad, grad school and all that, but I was, I was more uh, interested. And I think I'm still more interested in on um, hands-on applied work, working with people, doing projects, getting things done and having, I enjoy having the results of the project or the work. I, I like it. So based on that, and because when I graduated, I was the second on my, how to say it in English, on my... Like ranking? Yeah, okay. so there was the first, and then I was the second and third. Ah. Yeah, and everyone, including all my professors, oh, you should apply for master's, you mm. should go for your master's. So I did, and I did two years two years, I think, of master degree in there. And by the end of it, the invasion happened of 2003. So that was a whole new thing. And I defended in 2003, in August, after the invasion, after Baghdad was invaded and looted, university was bombed. It was looted. I defended in a hall in the archaeology department that was looted. It was August, but the ACs were gone and the windows were broken. But we still defended. It's a public defense. You have to go through it. It was very hot, extremely hot in August in Baghdad. <laughs> but we did it. Wow. Yeah, so that was my defense. That was that day I'll never forget. <laughs> What was going on in your mind? Just trying to get my degree. And uh, I tried to convince my professor, who was like high-rank Bathy member, to defend before the invasion, like before the war was set to start. I think it was July 2003 or something. They, they said and did the they, people have, like, were, were you notified that something might be happening soon? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We all knew it was building up. Mm. But my professor was like, no, 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 they will never invade. Don't worry. We're not going to move the defense date. Like, you know, it's like, okay. But of course the war happened. And then my professor was um, dismissed from his position because he was bathy. So now I have to have another supervisor who could get me through the defense and have my degree. And that did happen. Uh, they helped me. The university helped. I had a different advisor and the defense happened and I was awarded my degree and I was very happy. But it was also sad because all that plan to work in the Iraq Museum, to work in the State Board of Antiquities, that whole thing collapsed. The museum was looted. Uh, the offices of the Antiquity Department, Antiquities Department was looted, destroyed, burned. So now instead of having a job, you're like, 
facing this mass destruction and chaos and like now what and did you ever see yourself living outside of Iraq or was were you thinking of your future was going to be and remain in Iraq I mean you'd mentioned that mm-hmm. you're ideally looking for your career to be there and for that to all end one day yes <laughs> I can imagine uh left you distraught yeah I mean uh watching what they've done what they what they did to the Iraqi museum was shocking and was kind of the worst thing you can imagine as an Iraqi to begin with then as an Assyrian then as an archaeologist who specializes in studying and researching this stuff um so back then it was like a very very big crisis that we did not know how to cope with but then we did not know also what the future is mm-hmm. hiding for us it only got worse in terms of cultural heritage so it was very difficult and uh, really it was this uh, very weird and strange feelings of like you don't know what to do or you don't know how things will go from here so So what did you decide for yourself after that happened after the uh Iraq invasion happened? I took a job, just any job in Baghdad. It was not safe to work, but otherwise you need something to keep you, to keep you sane. Like you will do you would lose it. Uh the impact of the war and invasion of Baghdad it's underestimated, especially on local population because you always talk about the looting of heritage and all that which is very very important you talk about oil you talk about Saddam's wealth but really no one talks about how the war manifests on the local level could you talk about that a little bit um what was that like for you and your family yeah so sim- like simple things become really problem working commuting to work it's an issue because it's dangerous Every time you cross a bridge, you don't know if you're going to make it to the other end. The bridge may just blow up while you're crossing it. Uh someone may stop your car and kidnap you, kill the driver. Those were the horror stories that we used to live through to go back and forth to work, which made going to work very difficult. Your family is concerned and they are worried and rightfully. And it got to a degree, I think this is end of 2003 early and beginning of 2004 that even the driver who used to drive me from home to work told me that he can't do it anymore because he's worried that we will be the car will be hijacked he will be killed and I'll be kidnapped and he doesn't want to take that responsibility so even the driver gave up on me I'm like okay now what and then by complete chance i um found out about the fellowships uh scholarships that were offered by uh US aid for iraqi students or like young scholars to come to new york for this specific program it was to new york to stony brook university and do masters or phd degrees in there but it was by complete chance i had i did not plan it I never envisioned my life to be in the United States. It was, it's quite far. <laughs> it's very far away. But, yeah. yeah. And did your family follow you or did they 
No, remain in uh, Iraq. my family is still in Iraq, at least part of it. My parents are, and my sister is in Iraq, so yeah. So then that seemed like it was uh, end of one chapter for you and the start of a new chapter. Mm-hmm. What was the transition like moving from Baghdad to New York? Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. I can only imagine. It's, um, it was... It was amazing, you know, it's like you're coming from 10 years of economic sanctions that drained the country and just any ability to function as a normal place, as at least it used to be. And there was then the war, which was among the worst thing up to that point that we've experienced. There was the Iran war, but that was a completely different story in comparison to the American invasion. And then to be in New York, such an amazing, great, big city, all kind of people, fast paced. It, it was, it was amazing. Um, there were times where there was cultural shocks, many of them, uh, very funny moments and people who misunderstood who you are, where you are, and people who were surprised that you're from Iraq because they had certain idea about what Iraq is and what people should look like from Iraq. So basically, uh, we dealt with a lot. And especially during that time, because again, Iraq was on a lot of people's radars and on the news very often. Uh, So what year are you talking about that you uh, Um, made the move? Yeah, I made the move in end of June 2004. So right after... It was very early on. So you started your PhD work? I started two years as master's again, because when you come, they don't consider your degree from Iraq. So they put you through, at least in my case, and my other colleagues who are from different countries, you come and you still do like a year or two. And then you do all the exams needed, you know, GRE and all that. And then you apply just like any other student. After the two years, I started the PhD program. And your PhD was in archaeology and anthropology? Yeah. What were you focusing on? So I started wanting to do something on Assyria. But then because of the war, it was very hard to access. You can't go on a dig. You can't do... um, field work and also my advisor was more focused on Babylonian part like southern Mesopotamia I had interest in like uh, looking at mm, local communities and daily lives and households and neighborhoods so eventually I settled with looking at the Kassite dynasty in Babylonia which is southern Mesopotamia and southern Iraq today and uh, I researched this wooden minority group, which is called the Kassites, and their presence in Mesopotamia and how they took over power and ruled for four centuries, although they were a foreign minority um, that came to southern Mesopotamia. You completed your PhD in what year? 2014. 2014. During that process, what was going on in your mind with regards to your future? Like, were you seeing your future to remain in the U.S.? Did you or do you have ever hopes of returning back to Iraq? So the first two years were set in a plan that, with a plan that 
uh, it was when I came, I should say this, when I came, I came with other Iraqi students. And the plan was for us to basically catch up with what's in updated, like in research and methods, theory and all that, and then take that and go back to Baghdad University in our case and start teaching there. So bring what's uh, what we've missed because the economic because of the economic sanctions over a decade. Obviously, that plan failed, just like the whole invasion plan failed. Um, so you can see how every it's like everything just collapses, and we can go back for security reasons. And um, the situation is so bad in Baghdad, and then the peak of the sectarian violence and being member of a minority makes things even worse. So you'll end up being stuck, and. Um, I think you make peace with the fact that, okay, I will have to stay here longer and I just have to work with what I have. And that's what I did. After PhD, I was hired as a research associate at the Department of Art, History and Archaeology at Columbia. And I worked uh, with a professor there on the project that I'm still involved in. Uh, it's called Mapping Mesopotamian Monuments. That project started end of 2014 and 2015. I think our first field work, no, it must have started earlier. So my position was, uh, I managed the content for our very, very big uh, database. And also I went to field work. I went to field with our team, which is at least has been a mix of art historian, archeologist and media people, media specialists. And I spent a few years there, and then I became a postdoctoral fellow at the Italian Academy for Advanced Studies at Columbia. And for that, I was given time and opportunity to kind of focus more on the issues of cultural heritage and the destruction of cultural heritage and the local communities and questions about politics of cultural heritage and politics of archeology span in the Middle East in general. So it was great. Being a postdoc fellow at the Italian Academy was really a good thing. It gives you time and focus on your research and it was a very stimulating environment. And from there, I became a program director at the Middle East Institute now at Columbia. Could you talk more about the mapping Mesopotamian monuments and yeah. what you're doing with that? Sure. So this is a really nice project. It's directed by an Iraqi-American professor, Zainab Bahrani, uh, in the Art History and Archaeology Department. It is set to document uh, monuments, Mesopotamian monuments, as early as prehistoric, all the way to late Ottoman period. So it's very inclusive, time-wise is very big, and also spatially, like regionally, is very big, is very ambitious, and is definitely happening on stages. So what we do, usually we have a small team of people, we work with our colleagues in Iraq, so we're always in touch with local authorities, we have people who are on the team from Iraq, and uh, we go with specific goal of documenting certain sites each season. We do that using three, four, it's getting more and more different types of cameras to document these sites, evaluate their preservation status, the damage um, that has been done to them or possibly will happen, 
also document the environment and the surrounding landscape. So the whole the goal of the whole research project is basically to provide documentation of what exists because you see how easy these sites are disappearing and they're being destroyed one way or another. So A, documenting what is in there and uh, also kind of make it make information available for people who work on heritage preservation, architectural preservation, or people who wants to study the landscape and look at these sites. So make information and data available for like further research to build on. And also we are very aware of uh, rewriting of history that is happening in the region. So documenting what exists will always be important and available to basically counterpart the changing in narrative and revising of history of this region. And just to touch on that, you'd mentioned that, yeah, the rewriting of history and the importance of documenting things like this, which narrative ends up gaining more legitimacy? Because the argument can also be made that the people quote-unquote, on the ground in Iraq are, are saying one thing, so wouldn't that be the legitimate? So most of the time, and from prior experience, it, the state produces certain narrative, right? And that is taught in schools and universities. That happens everywhere. It's not mm. unique to Iraq. In Iraq, it's happening over and over. And now it depends where are you in the country. You get different way, different version of the history. But at the same time, when you can fact check, Mm. you can argue against it. And that's the good thing about it. Okay, yes, you say so and so, but here's the evidence, here are the sites, here is the text, here is the information. So it's important to discuss and argue and have this back and forth. I can't say which narrative wins, but it's good to have more than one narrative. Mm. You can't just let the state of the or the ruling regime just produce one narrative and let them just get away with it. Mm-hmm. They have to know that there are people who can criticize and watch and you know discuss this narrative. You had mentioned uh, yesterday in your lecture that at one point your interests shifted within the work that you were doing. Could you talk more about that and what led to that shift? I think you're referring to my earlier work was more on archaeology. So I was uh, on excavations more often. And also my research was purely on ancient um, societies, questions and issues. The looting of the Iraq Museum and the looting of sites, it really like changed how I look at this whole field. And then with ISIS arriving in the region made it even more like made it even worse. So at some point when I was finishing my PhD, I decided I need to get some credentials in the field of historical preservation or cultural heritage and preservation studies. Um, So I did a diploma at Rutgers University. It's a program called CHAPS, Cultural Heritage and Preservation Studies in the Art History Department. I basically took courses there and I finished. It was like a year of thing because I already have the uh, credits and all that. So after finishing there and basically learning about global cultural heritage and the politics of heritage and the UNESCO and all the you know uh, conventions and also learning about 
cultural heritage in different parts of the world and how you can draw parallels, you know, in the issue of indigenous versus non-indigenous and uh, so on. And given everything happening in Iraq, so yeah, my thinking started shifting a bit more toward what's currently happening to cultural heritage in Iraq. And also, I'm more interested in with what this heritage means for local communities, for people of Iraq. Yes. Mm-hmm. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that. There were terms that you had discussed yesterday um, that I'd love for you to elaborate on. You had mentioned a uh, big component. And just so listeners hear, the lecture yesterday was on heritage, places, memory, identity and belonging in Iraq. So can you talk a little bit about what cultural genocide is and how we see that play out with regards to Assyrians? Yes. So scholarly, we know that cultural genocide was a term coined in 1944 or around that time by a lawyer who basically looked at what happened to the Armenians and Assyrian massacre at Semele, actually, which is really interesting it triggered his thinking uh, to come up with this term. And for he argued that destruction of one's material culture should be part of the genocide. And it is important, it's not secondary. But then when he pushed for the term to be part of the UN or uh, UNESCO conventions and approaches to this whole issue, obviously it's very hard to bring the destruction of cultural heritage and make it part of the genocide because the states in that are part of the United Nations and UNESCO have their own issues with this. You know, genocides were committed in countries such as this, and you know, here in the West as well as other places in the world. So, like today, cultural genocide is used, but also not that much. They sometimes uh, substitute the term with mass killing or massacres and so on. I think it is very important to to basically keep thinking, keep it in your mind that cultural heritage is connected to people. So yes, killing people is horrible, but destroying their cultural heritage is equally bad. Because that's how you wipe out the people and their history and their existence from a region. You kill them and you delete any trace that proves that they were here at one point. That's how I uh, look at cultural heritage and people. Is They're not two separate things. And all, because at the end of the day, cultural heritage is not only a building. It's everything that happens in these sites, the rituals, performances, the thinking, memories of the people that are connected to these sites. So they're integral. And you mentioned yesterday as well, the collective memory and cultural memory. So can you discuss what that means? Um, I really like cultural memory because I, I think I can get a lot of what people, how people connect to their heritage through what memory they have. Just from my own experience, if I tell you about my memory of the site of Nimrud, that's the site is not the place of ancient events or an ancient empire and people that they died out. No, it's a site that is living and it's part of my history. It's part of my culture, and I have memories at the site. So that's applicable to so many Iraqi people, and as well as so many Assyrians who basically know of these sites, or they've been, 
And if you haven't been to these sites, I'm sure you've been to museums where you find artifacts that they came from these sites. So you have your own experience and also you interact with this heritage. It's not isolated, you know it, and it means something to you. So cultural memory, it's really, really important when it comes to identity as well, because it plays a role in it. That's how we all care for Nimrod, because we have uh, some memories one way or another, or any other heritage sites. And also these places give you belonging. Because you know of the place, and you're connected, and you have certain memory to it, you feel you belong there. That's the home that you have in, your, in the back of your head. And what happens when instances such as 2003, instances such as 2014 come in, people come in and loot and ruin part of that cultural heritage component, the way that people find a connection and have a connection with these sites and they become destroyed and what happens? Yeah, I mean, it's horrifying. Uh, people get traumatized for sure. Everything that Iraq went through after 2003 and the looting of the museum and the sites and all that, it's incompatible to the moment where an ISIS fighter takes a hammer and starts hammering the Lamassos. In their wild dreams, Iraqis never, never thought that one day someone will do this. All of them. So to wake up to these images, it's horrifying. You, you try to make sense of them, and you can't make sense of them. Especially at that time, a lot of these fighters were not even Iraqis. Like, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, you, you try to cope with it, and it's not easy. Now, that's more general. If you get more specific and look at the Assyrian community, they were horrified because Assyrian community almost they lost their home, homeland. They've been forced out. And what they have is their cultural heritage. That's what they have. It lives in them. And for that, even to be attacked and basically wiped out, it's really hard. It's very hard. And different people react different ways. Uh, people get very emotional about it. People try to do something, but it's, it's difficult. It's much bigger issue than themselves. It's not easy to deal with. What happens when people try to replicate the what has been destroyed? In terms of artifacts, you mean? Mm -hmm. I think it's an attempt. It's fine. It should not be the end to our... It's, it should not be the end result. It should be something that will lead to an effective on-ground solutions to protection of these uh, sites and material culture. You'd mentioned something yesterday as well about the Assyrian cultural identity and memory falls into three things, the language, homeland, and religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually the factors, like what are the elements that are this that brings or build together the identity of this ancient community. And at least from my own examination, it's the homeland, the location where they are and also language and religion. Of course, I fully understand that not all Assyrians are Christians, but taking on Christianity early on, it played the role of creating this identity. 
But language and homeland is definitely the two major elements on which a Syrian community built its identity. And they connect the people to their ancient pre-Christian heritage. And I think they are aware of it, Assyrians know that. And they project through these elements to their cultural identity, which is great. And it's also why these elements are important to be protected and preserved and, you know, to keep going. You don't want to lose all the connection with your ancestral history. Two of those factors are at huge risk, like language and homeland. And I know that there's initiatives like Gishu Mm -hmm. that tries to place a connection. I've been one of the participants Mm -hmm. to have a connection to an ancestral homeland, whereas if I'm born in the diaspora, Mm -hmm. I don't really have a connection to it. Mm -hmm. And it did help me find uh, and see a connection. But, you know, given those three factors in terms of contributing to a person's identity, and they're really at risk of being jeopardized, what would we see as our, our future? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't seem so hopeful. If I could you be can't, honest. You can't yeah. lose hope. Okay. Uh, think of everything I told you and how, yeah, yeah it's, it's not easy, but you can't lose hope. I think what you can do is just have like kind of new, a fresh approach to the whole thing because the situations are changing and we have to change our approaches and our methods. You know, you have to cope with what's happening on the ground. Ten years ago, we did not have ISIS. Now there was ISIS, there is this. You know, you just have to be more creative, come up with new ways, try your best. And I think it can happen. Like, it's not impossible. It's not easy, though. So I would not be on the academic level. So there's the academic side of it. But on a community side, I would like so much to see more grassroots organizations, youth organizations that are independent with no political agenda or like religious agenda or anything, just pure grassroots organizations with young people who can actually cope and come up with new methods, come up with new ideas and try to connect, to preserve, to understand, to learn. Also document. Documentation is so important and our community is not good in it. We're not used to collect our old stuff. Books written by our grandfathers. This is an important part of our history. Your arrival in here in these countries in diaspora. Your history here. Assyrian community's been how long in the United States and North America? For yeah. like many years? Yeah. So far we don't have a proper museum or a gallery where we can tell our story as opposed to other people telling us what our story is. So I think we need to change the way we're working. We need to get out of the traditional settings that we've been comfortably working within for so many years. We need a fresh take on the whole thing. And working in other places in the Middle East, because my current job has nothing to do with Assyrians or Iraq, but working in different countries, different cultures in the Middle East, I can see how youth and the role that they're playing is very important. Activism, however, try to be as independent as possible. And I do see that there's a lot of initiatives that are 
trying to be made in the diaspora and also in the ancestral homeland yeah. from youth. And there's been great strides, but also I think you touched on a great point that as things unfold and certain uh, events happen that can change uh the day-to-day or the future of a people, it's important to then try to get creative on ways to remain resilient yeah. and, and moving forward. You were quoted in a in an article a few days ago on Barron's about the Christie's selling of an Assyrian relief for $31 million US, which was the highest for an Assyrian work of art and the second highest paid for an antiquity, as they wrote. You'd mentioned people feel that their heritage has been wiped out and destroyed and that this action is an addition to the ongoing cultural genocide. Do you care to elaborate on that a little bit more or what the importance is that they're quoting somebody who is an Assyrian and has a connection to that artwork? Yeah, I think it's it's very good that Assyrian community is expressing its feelings and stand when it comes to its heritage. And I think that's one step forward. I'm really happy with that. This article was one example. Being verbal, expressing your connection to this heritage is very important. Even though it doesn't affect what's happening, the piece still got sold in auction, but at least you make your voice heard. You let people know you exist and this means to you. And it's not only a beautiful piece of art, it's basically part of your history and heritage. That's important. The problem with Christie's auction is that the piece went into a private collection, which means it will be taken away from the public domain. We won't have access to it. It will be placed in someone's house or a basement. So that's really, that's what I mean when it's an addition to the ongoing cultural genocide is when you're prevented from accessing your cultural heritage, which is a very basic human rights issue. So legally, they claim that it's legal and that they've checked paperwork and the history of the piece. So it seems that there is no legal ground the, that you can use to fight against it. At the end of the day, it's just a great loss for Assyrian people and for Iraqis in general. Again, it's very, very hard to stand and see your heritage being auctioned. And it's like, you know, someone taking your house and giving it, selling it or like a piece of what you own or something. It's, it's highly problematic, but it's happening and I'm sure it will happen again and again. Dr. Malko, we have listeners that are from all over the world. What piece of advice or what is something that you would like to say to them? Work hard, have a lot of self-confidence and... Um, don't give up and you can do it and you can work for the cause, Assyrian cause, one way or another. We don't have all to do this one thing. You can choose your path and go about it. I very much support Assyrian youth, but especially Assyrian women, and I encourage them. And I think the Assyrian community survives because of its women. That's my take. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you.